The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Jane Perone, and every time I type the word houseplant, it comes out as houselpant. The struggle is real, people. Hello, welcome to On The Ledge Podcast, episode 160. How are you all doing? This week, we will be looking at plant pigments with Professor Knox McCunga as the latest instalment in my Leaf Botany series. And I'll be answering a question about a silver ripple peperomia. Plus, we'll be hearing from listener Mia. How has your week been? Mine's been variable, to say the least. I've been suffering from A, B, C. That's another bloody cold. Uh, I've no doubt caught from my children's return to school. So I've uh, been uh, getting through quite a few boxes of tissues here at On The Ledge Towers. But in exciting news, my Legends of the Leaf crowdfunder is now at 30. Let me just double check this. I want to give you wrong information. I think it's at 36% last time I looked. Yes, 36% and 220 supporters. So if you're one of those 220, thank you very much indeed for your support. As I've said before, this book means a lot to me and I really want to make it happen. And I hope you do too. So do spread the word about the book. If you can't afford to pledge yourself, then maybe tweet about it or stick up an Instagram post or story. Or why not phone a friend and just tell them about the book? And thank you to Sophie, who got in touch this week, to tell me what the basic in basic slang means. You may remember from part one of the Potting Mix Ingredients episode that I talked about the mysterious ingredient called basic slag, which I found referenced in a book about epiphytic cacti. Well, turns out that the basic, according to Sophie, refers to the pH of a substance, more commonly called acids and alkalis now, but an older way of describing them is bases and acids. So the basic in the name is telling you slag is alkali in nature. Isn't that useful? That's that's really handy to know, Sophie. So thanks for filling me in on that. And Sophie also got in touch about the meet the listener question. She's not too keen on the new Mars question because she says, I just think if I were to take a plant to Mars, I would have to choose something useful or edible. There just wouldn't be space for anything else. Well, I kind of like I thought it was (laughs) I was assuming that you would have some, you know, an onboard farm which would be providing for your immediate physical needs and that the the houseplant you'd be taking would just be a little bit of an extra for your own mental well-being. Sophie has come up with a brilliant alternative question about Dr. Hesseon, (laughs) author of The Houseplant Expert. She suggests, if Dr. Hesseon dropped by unexpectedly for coffee and you only had time to show him one plant, what would that be? (gasps) Sophie, that is... 
that's an evil question because, of course, if Dr. Hoseon did pop round for tea, one, I would have already fainted by this point with excitement, and two, what on earth would I pick? It's a really great question, Sophie. I'm going to stick with the Mars question for the moment, but as I said in my email reply to you, I will change all the Meet the Listener questions at some point. Perhaps we'll set up some new ones for 2021, and I think your question is a great contender for the 2021 questions, so thanks very much for sending it in. Thank you to Kiwi Gardener Guy in New Zealand, who left a lovely review for the show on Apple Podcasts. And to Alana, who says that she can't leave a review on Spotify because it's not possible to do that. But if she could, she would leave a five-star review. Thank you very much, Alana. She's been listening for about four or five months now, and apparently it's her absolute favourite podcast ever. I feel very honoured. And her four-year-old son has taken a huge interest in houseplants too and has picked out his own plants, a pink calico and an nepenthes. So that is awesome that your four-year-old is getting into plants. Sounds a bit like me as a child. That was definitely uh, where I fitted in. Have I got any younger listeners than four-year-olds to on the ledge? I suspect not, but if I'm wrong, do, do let me know. I got a message from Katerina who's referring back to part three of the potting mix ingredients episodes, asking whether worm castings could be sterilised in the oven. And Katerina says, I sterilised my ingredients in the oven for half an hour at 100 degrees C. I can't find good ingredients which I can afford as a student. In this heat, no insects, pests or bacteria can survive. It's a really good thought and there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. I guess from my point of view, the only downside is you are killing off anything in the way of beneficial bacteria as well as anything pest wise. But I do appreciate your dilemma. And if you have got those supplies, then why not use them? And last dip into the email inbox to mention a message from Sarah, who got in touch after listening to the silicon episode. Sarah's a horticulture professional and uses a silicon supplement called Protect with great success. My company mainly does interior plants, Sarah writes, and we've added it regularly to our fertilizers schedule for years. But the past couple of years, I've used it in our exterior mix planters and it has made a real difference. The plants withstand drought better and the foliage is noticeably more shiny and healthier. In some cases, it changes how the leaves actually feel. It's hard to describe, but they're sturdier and more beautiful. How interesting. Well, I guess that's just because they've got more silicon in them. Thanks to new patrons Liz, Hannah and Susanna this week. And Susanna let me know that On The Ledge saved their string of pearls. Well, that's great news. And that's what the show is all about. Saving your houseplants. One care tip at a time. Just a reminder to all patrons that you need to make sure your address is up to date on your Patreon profile so that I can send out your festive December mail out. So if you're a subscriber of $5 a month or more, make sure that address is right. I'll be dropping a message to everybody who hasn't registered their address in the next couple of weeks, just in case you do want to change your mind on that. And that way you'll get access to the mail out, which is in progress as I speak and very exciting. For the $5 tier, the Legends, there's going to be a card, a bit like last year. The $10 tier, well, it's going to be something super exciting. It's going to be a poster. So one that you can put up among your houseplants and is going to look gorgeous. It's been designed by a listener who just happens to be a graphic designer. So I'm very excited to share that with you. And that poster, that design will also also become available on my Spreadshirt shop for merchandise. 
You may remember recently that I put out a call for Meet the Listener candidates from Scandinavia. Well, I'm very glad to say that Mia volunteered herself for the job. And here she is answering those five vital questions. My name is Mia, a 41-year-old plant lover living in Stockholm, Sweden. I have always had a great interest in both indoor and outdoor gardening. During summer, I focus on turning my piece of old forest land into a garden, which is quite exhausting. Now that we're approaching the colder season, I can focus on my houseplants instead. I think that the much more limited space makes it less stressful and much more enjoyable to me. A couple of years ago, I discovered On the Ledge, and I'm so happy that I can develop my houseplant skills while trail running at the same time. And that in combination has meant a lot to me, especially during the pandemic. You've been selected to travel to Mars as part of the first human colony on the Red Planet. There's only room for one houseplant from your collection on board. Which plant do you choose? First of all, I would never go to Mars. I'd rather die, to be honest. But ignoring that, the plant I would bring on this awful journey would have to be my big peace lily, Spathiphyllum wallisii. Not that it's a rare or especially beautiful plant in any way, but because NASA concluded that it's excellent for cleaning the air in a space station, which could be useful. But I guess that the question is all about which one of my house plants I care most about and wouldn't want to lose, so I'd say one of my old big Hoya canosas. I've had mine for nearly 20 years, and like many others I got it from a grandmother, just not my grandmother. Well, she in turn got it from her mother, and they are both gone since long. But the plant still reminds me of the old lady who I liked a lot. And it was also my first Hoya that sparked my interest in the rest of the Hoya genus. Question two. What is your favourite episode of On the Ledge? My favourite episode of On the Ledge would have to be one of the Hoya episodes, and that is 82 and 123, since I love Hoyas, and I've actually listened to the same episode several times. But since I almost freak out every time a small piece of perlite has landed on one of my darlings, dreading that it's a mealybug, I also appreciated episode 143 on the topic of mealybugs. And I almost lost all my orchids in 2019 to mealybugs, and it was terrible. Question three. Which Latin name do you say to impress people? My friends are quite easily impressed by any Latin name I drop since none of them really share my interest. But I do like to say Hoya subquintuply nervis just because it's so hard to get it right. I believe it's the same as Hoya pachyclada, so that could be used instead. Question four. Crassulation, acid metabolism or gotation? I long heard that question without understanding it, until it was explained in an episode some months back. Well, I guess I must say cam, because it's simply genius. Nature is so clever and fascinating. Question five. Would you rather spend £200 on a variegated monster or £200 on 20 interesting cacti? I have never been a big fan of neither monstrous nor variegation and £200 is a lot of money to spend on one plant. However, if I would see it as an investment, I guess I could easily get the money back since they are sold for much more these days. But since I don't make any money on my house plants, I'd have to go with the 20 cacti. 
I guess I'd appreciate the variation more, and cacti can be rather interesting plants, even though I must say they come nowhere near Hoyas, obviously. Thank you, Mia. And I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who's had a panic attack every time I see a bit of stray perlite on a succulent because that was me this week checking out my calencos in the greenhouse. Yes, (laughs) the fear is real. If you'd like to put yourself forward for Meet the Listener, then drop a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com and my assistant Kelly will fill you in on how to take part. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, it's time for another instalment in my occasional leaf botany series. And I'm joined this week by Knox Makunga, who is a plant scientist working in the Department of Botany and Zoology at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, shining a light on the people of colour who are working in the field of botany around the world. I'll put a link in the show notes to find out more about Black Botanist Week. Do check it out. But now on with the interview. Thanks for joining me, Professor Knox Makunga, and we have got some very interesting things to talk about today. I have been looking at my houseplant leaves for many a year and wondering why on earth they are the amazing colours they are, and I'm hoping you're going to be able to provide some of the answers to those questions today in this leaf botany special. I guess the first thing to ask And this is really something that I kind of thought I knew. But then when I thought more deeply, I realised I have no idea exactly what they are. What are the pigments that turn our plants different colours? So there are definitely leaves that, um, well, plant pigments that are in our leaves and quite a variety that give beautiful colours. Examples being anthocyanins, which give the red colours that you see during autumn when the chlorophyll degrades, and then also flavonoids, which give beautiful um, yellow and orange uh, colors. And these all come from quite a complex type of metabolism, which is very specialized. But these colors or pigments are actually in the plant all the time. It's just that when the chlorophyll starts to break down, as temperatures drop and the day length changes um, during autumn, they become more prevalent. And so we get to see them and enjoy them. So we've got all these different wonderful pigments contributing to the beauty of our leaves, but what are they actually doing to help the plant and to offer different functions? They have quite a few functions, uh, actually. So, Um, The bright red colours and even the yellows and oranges are mainly there as attractants for pollinators and to assist seed dispersal. 
And they're also, um, you know, when they're sitting in, in the fruit, but they also serve as protectants. So they, you know, perform the function of UV protection. And, you know, similarly to us that have, you know, pigment in order to deal with the harsh effects of ultraviolet light, um, plants also use these as protectants. And some plants use the, um, particularly the carotenoids as uh, additional pigments or accessory pigments to assist with photosynthesis. So there are a variety of different functions and it makes it quite interesting to have plants that have these wonderful colors. Often plants will also express pigments when they're under stress. So when conditions are pretty stressful, these pigments are there as uh, a means to deal with reactive oxygen species. There are so many different wonderful combinations of colours that we get in plants. One thing that I am often asked is about changes of colour in plants. So, for example, somebody will report that their cactus or succulent, they've moved its location and it's suddenly gone, taken on a red tinge. Is that some kind of retrospective action by the plant to protect itself? Is it a kind of a stress response when you get those red tinges? Yes, it actually is. And I'm really glad you mentioned succulents and cacti because they often produce a different set of colored pigments. And these are known as betalanes. And beetroot has that very deep uh, red, purpley red color. And this would be the betalanes that it's actually producing. And with the betalanes, again, some of them are yellow, some of them are slightly orange, and then obviously red. And it's quite fascinating that a group of plants which belong to the order of Caryophyllale, it's quite a hard one to pronounce that name, <laughs> they have evolved this betalane metabolism, and some of them also might generate anthocyanins. And it's often dependent on which parts of the planet that they're actually found. So the reds are really uh, there for protection. And to protect the plant from ultraviolet light, and it is also related to stress. So when plants are stressed, then they start to generate these specialized compounds that actually do facilitate their ability to cope with a particular stress. So, for example, I did a really lovely experiment where we, I took a plant that I work on, which is actually a succulent, and we placed it on a growth medium, which had high levels of salt. And within a few days, those beautiful reds started to actually express themselves. So often those colors, especially the bright colors that are red, orange, and yellow, are linked to stress-regulated metabolism. That's really interesting. And it gives you an insight into, you know, our human desire to make our plants do dramatic things. I mean, I always 
think of the very popular houseplant string of hearts which i've seen being sold as some kind of they're claiming that it's some kind of pink cultivar whereas looking at it it's quite clear to me that it's just the plant has been stressed and um is being sold um not well under false pretenses really as being some kind of pink cultivar whereas actually the plant's just stressed and lots of people have reported that when they get it home and after it's been there for a few weeks, it's gone green because it's no longer stressed in whatever way they were stressing it. So it's interesting how we can manipulate plants in this way to do different things, to give them a different appearance. It's certainly something that seems to be exploited to some extent by particularly by cactus and succulent growers in various ways. One of the other things that I've noticed and certainly a lot of my listeners have noticed with certainly with lots of subtropical plants and tropical plants is lots of leaves with red undersides. What this could be begonias, it could be lots of members of the Maranta group. And I haven't been able to find out one definitive answer as to why that is a useful uh, thing to do, perhaps because there isn't one overarching reason. But what are the different reasons for a plant to to have a lot of red, red pigment on the undersides? Well, I think sometimes they, you know, they grade their pigments. So the top part might be very green and that will have lots of chlorophylls and those chlorophylls are, are absorbing the light because it is the top surface of the plant that is generally absorbing lots of light. The green pigment will be sitting at the top and then the undersurface will have you know, a, a different color because that's not necessarily the part of the leaf that's um, absorbing a lot of light. And I think it often depends on their evolutionary trait and the environments that they might be growing in. There's lots of different mechanisms that might be responsible for plants to actually have different pigments in different places and even at different times. See, it is quite complex and I don't think we have all of the answers with regards uh, to this. And I would say often it is, you know, shade-loving plants that might actually have red pigment. And again, I would say that's a evolutionary trait to facilitate coping with environments that might uh, result in lots of sun exposure. As humans, we love to look at these leaves and, and the reasons why we love these leaves might be completely different from the reasons why the plants themselves have come up with these different strategies, but it does make them very attractive to us when you get this, these amazing colours. One of the things, though, that I've noticed on the variegated, often when you've got variegated plants that have got a lot of, of white where there's just no chlorophyll present, these leaves seem to suffer quite badly from burning. So is that because the, there's just a lack of pigment kind of, this is a very um, amateurish description, but acting as a kind of um, sun protection for the plant where, and, and when that's missing, the leaf burns, or is there some other reason why you get burns on plants with very little pigment in them? That's absolutely right. I think those parts that are white generally lack pigment, and as a result, they're more susceptible to sunburn. Um, a lot of these pigments are often acting as sunscreens. And so in areas where there's nutrition, indeed, they're much more susceptible to burn. 
and the areas that have got pigment are light absorbing and they are able to actually handle the you know the effects of UV light. So this the suite of photosynthetic machinery actually also is somehow acting as a protectant because it is protecting DNA and the very sensitive photosynthetic complexes that are involved in, in photosynthesis. So places that are white are more likely to burn. We'll be hearing more from Knox shortly, but now it's time for question of the week. And it comes from Kathleen, who wants some guidance for her propagation project, a silver ripple peperomia. It's been in water in a Ziploc bag and has sprouted tiny translucent roots. But Kathleen's not sure what to do next. Well, we've all been there. You have a mad spree of propagation. And then what do you do when do you transfer those plants to soil when are they ready and when is that propagation sweet spot if you're not familiar with this particular cultivar of peperomia it's actually a cultivar of the species peperomia caparata with the wonderfully ruffled or even corrugated leaves heart-shaped very beautiful And in the case of this cultivar, it's got this beautiful silver sheen, which is lighter between the veins. And then there's a dark vein system running through the leaf. Really beautiful. So well done for having this beautiful plant, Kathleen. I'm not quite sure how you propagated your plant, Kathleen, but it sounds like you've been using a clear plastic bag. Perhaps the cutting's just been sat in there in a little bit of water. If you've listened to the episode I did with Sally Williams, the national collection holder of Peperomia here in the UK, then you'll know that her hummus pot method is a brilliant way of propagating these plants. So Kathleen's plant has got tiny translucent roots. I guess the key question, Kathleen, is how long are those roots? So if the roots are merely a couple of millimetres or even centimetres long, anything less than couple of centimetres or an inch in old money. If you prefer, then I would say keep it in the water and wait a bit longer. Ideally, I'd say the roots need to be somewhere between two and five centimetres for the plant to be ready to pot up. Why does that make a difference? Well, if you only have tiny roots, then once the plant's gone into its potting mix, as opposed to being in water, the surface area of the root will dictate how much water can be absorbed tiny roots can't do as much work as larger roots. So it's really worth waiting for those roots to develop a bit more and then your plant will have a better chance of being established. It's worth saying that sometimes preparomias can be quite slow to propagate this way. I had a, a lovely peperomia maculosa. I think I've mentioned it on the show before. This is, in my opinion, one of the most interesting peperomias there is. It's got these large, large leaves, which can be up to 20 centimetres long. And they have a nice smell as well, a sort of a spicy-ish kind of smell. And it's actually a medicinal plant in its home country of Guatemala. 
And unfortunately, I overwatered my plant and I was left with not even just one leaf, but a section of a leaf, which I managed to save and propagate. But the plant's going, but it's just being extremely slow to establish any top growth. And that's because it's putting all its energy into making more roots. So for Kathleen, I would say hang in there with your propagation and let those roots get a bit longer. What do you do then once the roots have reached the required length? Well, then it's a question of transitioning your plant into life in a potting mix as opposed to just being in water. Once it's out of that plastic bag, air humidity is obviously going to drop. So it's very wise once you've potted up your cutting to actually put a clear plastic bag around the whole thing pot and all and that way you're creating a little microclimate that these plants will actually love higher air humidity means the plant will have to transpire less which means the roots will have to do less work so it's a really good way of giving plants a kind of slightly less stressful environment to really get established and then once you've convince the plants happy and settled in you can start taking that bag off for a little period every day until the plant is ready to go it on its own and you can take the bag off completely i'm propagating some peperomia incarna cuttings at the moment just in water another one of my absolute favorite peperomias and really it's fine to do this kind of propagation at any time of year it just means that if you are in your winter time and light is lower that you may find the plant is slower to establish itself and of course you can offer some extra light or some extra heat or both by putting the plant on a heat mat putting it under a grow light and so on depends how much you want to cosset your plant really and the other thing worth saying with these cuttings is if you're propagating from a single leaf at what point will that single leaf that was the originator of the cutting start to die off? Well, it depends. It may start getting in the way of the new plant developing, but you've got to sort of judge it yourself as to when the plant has enough new leaves to be able to photosynthesize effectively. You may find the leaf just dies off of its own accord, or you might need to cut some of it away. It's really a question of using your judgment and not letting that leaf rot because then you might encourage botrytis to set in. You don't want any fungal conditions. So if anything starts to rot, then do nip it off with a clean pair of scissors straight away, making sure that you cut beyond the healthy material to make sure that the rot can't progress any further. And just so you don't think that I am some kind of peperomia genius, I have to say I'm really struggling with my watermelon peperomia at the moment. It got stuck behind another plant and hidden and thus neglected for a long time. And boy, is it looking fed up. So send kind thoughts for my water melon peperomia peperomia argyrea because i really need to start taking care of that plant it's very beautiful and i've <laughs> unfortunately it got neglected for quite a few weeks so my bad but this is what happens as i say so many times if you leave plants in places where they're not being spotted you won't spot the problems when they start do go back and listen to those two peperomia episodes if you want to know more about peperomias they're a really fascinating group of plants but I do warn you, if you end up getting started on mass propagation of peperomias, it is rather addictive. So watch out. You may have to uh, find some friends in need of some new plants before long. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. 
Right, now it's time to head back to my chat with Professor Knox Makunga. Working in Cape Town in South Africa, I imagine, uh, you know, it's there's so many plants that we grow as houseplants that originate from your part of the world. So it must be an amazing place to be a botanist. Can you tell me about some of the plants that you're that you're researching right now? What kind of things are you working on? I work on a variety of different things, and most of them are of medicinal value. We've been doing a project with rooibos for Aspilatus linearis, and those plants are quite unique in that they come from very restricted areas in South Africa, in the Cedarberg Mountains and certain parts of the Northern Cape. And so they are uniquely developed to be able to handle the climates around those areas. And I had a conversation with someone the other day and they thought that rooibos is everywhere in South Africa just because rooibos is now found all over the world as a team. And in actual fact, it comes from a very unique um, set of environments. So I prefer to work on medicinal plants of South Africa and especially those come from the Cape Flora. And the reason for this is because this Cape Floristic region is really fascinating for a botanist. It's a small area. It's a non-tropical part of the world. It's got a Mediterranean climate. The ecology of this region is really quite spectacular. And for a plant scientist, creates lots of interesting ecological, physiological questions and even questions linked to the molecular biology of these plants that have radiated and dispersed in this part of South Africa. And many of the plants that are found here are actually very strict endemics. But horticulturally, they're found all over the world. I would say pelagonians, for example, have become loved in all types of um, areas. And you know, you'll often see them on windowsills in Europe. And they belong to the family Gerinaceae. And people love those, those plants, but they actually have an African origin. Some of the other plants that I work on um, happen to be succulents. So I started another project where we're looking at a species known as Skeletium protosum. And in South Africa, it's been utilized for centuries to create happiness. So it has a set of mesembrine alkaloids that are antidepressants and skeletium is sometimes taken as part of a tea and it has these compounds that actually are mood alleviating and make you feel happy. So that's one species that I've been working on and it is one of these plants that also starts to turn red once it's actually stressed. Something else that's quite fascinating about it is that in the field, it likes to it likes to hide underneath of a little shrub. And again, I think it's it's that idea of hiding away from sunlight that might be causing deleterious effects on its growth form. And when it is exposed to sunlight, it pops out these betalane um, pigments that happen to be red. And I work on this because again, it's being commercialized as an antidepressant. And it has a very long history of use um, amongst the Khoi and the sand people of South Africa. So those are just two examples of the plants that I work on. 
Um, do you want to know about more? I'm fascinated by this. I mean, first of all, I kind of, I guess I knew somewhere deep in my consciousness that pelagoniums were from uh, the Cape, but I really that, that I just, that has blown me away because I mean, that is a plant that has spread all over the world. And, you know, I'm sure that if you ask most people, they would have absolutely no idea. They might think it came from the Mediterranean because so often they're associated with, you know, a beautiful whitewashed Mediterranean house with a, a balcony of pelagoniums but it's so interesting to remember that they're actually um from from your part of the world and what a fantastic plant tell me what about one more plant that you're studying if you would i also work on a plant that's called southerlandia frutescens and this is a legume it's a medicinal legume in afrikaans it's called kanker rose which means cancer bush and it has a history of being used as a treatment uh, for cancer. And we've been working on this species for quite a long while now. And we're interested in it because, again, it has been commercialized in South Africa. It is known to have anti-diabetic effects. It has an immunomodulatory effect. And um, it also has a stress-relieving effect. And you have various different products that are made here. So again, you find it as tinctures that you can take in little drops. You also have it being incorporated into cosmetics and a variety of other products, teas, gels, all kinds of different products. And that particular species is actually found in, you know, much broader. It has a much broader distribution here in South Africa. And where it is found, it's basically used. So in areas like KwaZulu-Natal, at some stage, they were using it as an anti-HIV treatment. And in the Cape, it is, is used um, mainly for um, cancer treatment um, by local people. And sometimes it's just included in plant herbal mixtures just to boost and lift the immune system. So it's a species that I've been working on for quite a while. And some of the work that we've done is to try and look at different chemotypes that you find in these variable geographic areas. And what's really interesting is that plants from different regions have different pharmacological activity. And this is probably a genetic variation rather than an environmental controlled process. So those are the kinds of questions that I'm interested in in my laboratory. And we also have created a system where we grow these plants in tissue culture. And we torture them a little bit by changing the environmental conditions to see how they're going to respond. So we may change nitrogen and phosphate and then monitor to see how they express their medicinal properties. And we think that this information is really useful for the commercialization of the species, but also by applying tissue culture, we're growing these plants en masse, and this actually saves the uh, populations that are found in limited numbers in the wild. Well, that is really fascinating, isn't it? It's amazing what plants can do. And this is why we need botanists like you, Knox, to bring us 
this fascinating insight into the plants around us. Knox Makunga, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned loads and it's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It's a beautiful day here in the Cape. I'm looking at the mountains at the moment and while I'm doing this. So I'm hoping that you are having a good afternoon there. And I love to talk about plants. I love to talk about South African plants. And it's been a a wonderful conversation. And I really appreciate the invite. Black Bottom this week. It's a wonderful way of discovering people of colour working in the field of botany, and I'll include all the relevant links in the show notes. That's all for this week's episode. I will be back next Friday with episode 161, and the following week I'll be taking a break for my children's half term holiday, so no episode on October the 30th. Thanks for joining me this week. Whatever you get up to, remember to stay hydrated, feel the sun on your face and make sure you get plenty of fresh air. Bye. Music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and the Encouragement Stick by Dr. Turtle. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit janeperone.com for details.